Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 18. We're going to be looking at the parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge, uh, Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Before we read the passage and take a look at it, let's pray together. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, uh, every time we come to your word, we can read it, we can study it, we can get to know it, and we can get to know about you through it. But unless the Holy Spirit works, uh, we uh, will not benefit or grow from it in the least. And unless your Holy Spirit works, no one who doesn't know you will be saved. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work and give each of us what we stand in need of. We come before you as beggars pleading this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and through his merits, in his name, amen. Luke uh, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So loved ones of hope, uh, church, and everyone with us here This morning, we're continuing our walk through Jesus' parables. We're in the midst of Luke right now, and we'll be back to Matthew uh, in uh, a few weeks. And as we look at this parable of uh, persistent prayer, this widow or the unjust judge, I want to begin with uh, where the parable begins by just looking at the story, starting in verse 2, noticing this. He said, Jesus speaking, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. We're beginning by looking at the judge, this is where Jesus starts. Now, Jesus would have already had his hearer's attention when he mentions the language of a judge because a judge in any particular town, whether a larger city like Jerusalem where there may have been a few of them or a smaller town where there may have been just one, a judge was a very significant figure. They would often sit near the city gates. People would bring their cases to the judge. Each town would have some sort of judge to handle these cases in Israel. But what stands out in this parable as Jesus begins is the character of the judge. What what this judge is like. That's what Jesus highlights. He's a judge who does not fear God and does not respect man. Now, the reason why this stands out is because if you know your Old Testament, Deuteronomy 1.16 says, I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, 
and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. Still other passages mention the need for judges to be just in their judgments. Second Chronicles 19, under King Jehoshaphat, he appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Now, in the Old Covenant, there were plenty of evil judges. In the New Covenant, we might think they had been purged out, but actually in Jesus' day, uh, judges were known, Alfred Edersheim, uh, in his uh, book on Jesus, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, uh, describes the judges in the city of Jerusalem as so corrupt they were called robber judges, which was common. Judges were robbers. They would uh, uh, take bribes. In fact, among some judges, the only way to get a hearing with them is if you paid their clerks money, the people who uh, were their helpers, and then they would get you on the docket, and then you could have your case heard before the judge. So judges were bought off with bribes. Now this judge is not a judge of character. He's not a judge who's concerned about the fear of the Lord and judging righteously. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. That's the little snippet we're given of him. And then Jesus goes right to the widow, verse three. So in this city, there was a widow who kept coming to the judge and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, again, we're told there's a widow in the story, which immediately conjures up a lot of images like a judge would. So would a widow in this culture, a widow is one who is vulnerable. A woman who has lost her husband and is left to fend for herself is incredibly vulnerable. And we might think that in our day, widows are less vulnerable and they might be right. We have some uh, programs uh, which widows can financially benefit from. Life insurance policies can be paid out to widows so that they can make a go of it financially. But what is characteristic of widows in any day and age is that they're easily taken advantage of, easily abused or mistreated, and left without a man to come to their defense. So we can understand the plight of this widow somewhat, though maybe not to the full extent. She's vulnerable. She has no power. She has no ability to get her case before this judge, especially not a judge who doesn't fear God and has no shame regarding human beings. Now, how might we expect this widow to be treated? Well, the Lord laid down some very specific commands regarding how to treat them. And these commands would have been running through the hearers of Jesus' parable, through, them, through their minds. Exodus 22, 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Don't you dare mistreat them. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2, woe to those who turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil. Jeremiah 22, 3, do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Zechariah 7, 10, do not oppress the widow. Deuteronomy 14, 29, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, you shall come, shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you. So saying don't harm them, but also bless them. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. In other words, you were vulnerable like widows are and fatherless and foreigners. 
Deuteronomy 27, 19, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Isaiah 1, 17, and then 23, Plead the widow's cause. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Unless we think that it was only the duty of the Israelites to advocate for widows, we read this regarding the Lord's advocation for widows. Deuteronomy 10, 17, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. Psalm 68, 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Strong language. Who's the Lord protecting? Widows. He is their protector. Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So Jesus includes in this parable a, a woman who is very vulnerable, who likely does not have enough money to defend herself in court, can't bribe the judge, and thus who comes to the judge asking the judge to be both her judge and her lawyer, right? Give me, give me justice. Now this is a woman who knows her case is bulletproof. It's not like she's guilty coming to the Lord. She knows she's innocent. She's being attacked by an adversary. And she asks the judge, not just give me a court case, but give me justice. Come on, judge. This is a slam dunk case. You don't need to deliberate over this. You know full well what's going on. Give me justice. Now, Jesus is setting up clear expectations for the outcome. If you were among his first hearers of this parable, here's what you would expect. The verdict, there is no way in God's green earth the judge is going to listen to this woman. No chance. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect people. And she doesn't have the money, the clout, or the power to get a hearing. She's a widow. There is no way this is going to work. <laughs> she's done. In fact, if she's not careful, he'll crush her. If she's not careful, he will see to it that her life goes farther south than it already is. Now, what does the widow do then? Verse 3. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, there's a lot of images here. We're not told the image, but here's what it could look like. The judge goes home at night. Hello, judge. Give me justice. Knock, knock. I want in. I want to talk about this. I've got an adversary. You know full well what's going on. Give me justice. Go away. <laughs> I'm, I'm not taking your case. Four hours later, she went home to get supper, comes back to the judge's door. He's reclining, ready to go to bed. Knock, knock, knock. Judge, give me justice. Go away. I am tired of you, lady. I'm not going to do this. Nope. Knock, knock, knock. God says you should. I don't care about God. Who, what does he matter? I don't fear him. I'm not a believer. You might be. That's fine. Go your own way. Knock, knock, knock. Judge, it's right. I don't care. Judge, you're going to be shamed if you don't rule for me. Why do I care about shame and honor? Why do I care about what's right and what's fair and what's good? Do you have money? Do you have any power? No, go away. And then he leaves his house the next day and goes over to wherever the courtroom is. And she follows him. Judge, give me justice. And he goes into the courtroom and she follows him in there until he finally kicks her out. And all she screams is, give me justice. And this goes on day after day. After day, the only thing the widow has at her disposal is what? The ability to drive him nuts and annoy him to death. That's all she has. No power, no money. He doesn't have a conscience. She can't appeal to that. 
And so she does the only thing she can do. I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to keep asking and asking and asking. And that's exactly what she did. So verse 4, we finally, we see the, the judge, the widow, then the, what the widow does, and now what the judge does. For a while, he refused. So there was a time the judge says, you know what, I can outlast this woman. Sure, she might be annoying now. She'll give up. Give it a week or two, a month or two, however long it is. We're not told in the parable, but you can use your imagination. I'm not going to give her justice. Mind your own manners, go away. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So we're not told how long she kept after him, but what the passage makes clear is that her will outlasted the judge's will. He gave in before she gave in. And notice his thought process. I don't fear God. He's not a believer. He doesn't care what God thinks. He doesn't care about widows and their plight and their vulnerability. He doesn't care that God has a heart for those who are vulnerable. doesn't care one iota. doesn't fear God at all. So his relationship with God is no reason at all to help the widow out. Which means, by the way, the people in the audience of this parable would assume that there is absolutely no way this judge will help the widow out. The second, he says, I don't respect man, right? And again, the language of respect uh, has the overtones of shame. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. So a lot of judges would actually rule in favor of the widow because they'd want to have their reputation upheld in the community in which they are. <laughs> He's basically saying this, I don't care if the whole town thinks that I'm a horrible judge and that I'm just a wretched fool. I don't really care. He has no shame at all. <laughs> Doesn't care about the respect of other people. This is quite a character which means there's now double no way this judge is going to rule in favor of her if you were among the hearers. And yet, this is where it gets interesting. Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So there is something that actually moved this godless, shameless judge to action. It was his own self-interest and self-preservation. The language keeps bothering, because this widow keeps bothering me is literally brings or causes me a strike, a blow, or a beating that is so hard it seriously weakens or debilitates. Deep fatigue or extreme weariness. This woman is wearing me out. She is beating me down so much that I am tired. I've had enough. I mean, you can use whatever phrase or adjective or synonym you want to throw in there. He's throwing in the towel. She's not going to stop. She is going to keep doing this. She'll put me in an early grave and she'll probably stand at my funeral and still keep asking me for justice. She's not going to quit. And then something else which is insightful here is the language of, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. Now, the language of beat down is to strike under the eye, to give someone a black eye, to beat black and blue, to smite so as to cause bruises or to give one intolerable annoyance. Now, she wasn't physically beating him, right? It's not like the widow was walking in this parable and Jesus says, yeah, she slugged him. No. But he's using language which depicts that, which means to him, this feels like a beatdown, right? Like he feels like Frazier after all Lee had his way with him, right? The next day he wakes up black and blue all over. Wow, I feel miserable. Sorry, I just dated myself. Some of you who are younger, famous boxers, right? After the famous fight when Ali beat Frazier. 
So the judge does something because he doesn't want to end up all bruised up and beat up. He actually gives her justice. He's going to take up her cause. So I will give her justice then. That's fine. So whoever this one's adversary is, the judge is going to bring an end to the crooked way this adversary is treating the widow and protect her and vindicate her cause, defend her, give her what is her due. This is striking. The widow hasn't bribed him for this. She, was not, she didn't pay him, didn't provide him with any benefit other than annoyance. And the situation of the widow gives the judge every reason not to help her. The situation of the widow gives the judge every reason not to help her, and her annoyance gives him all the more reason to decide against her. But the judge breaks, and he helps her out. Now, what's the point? It's a very simple parable. It's not like the parable of the two lost sons, where there's a lot of moving parts going on. It's a very simple parable, a very straightforward, very pinpoint point that Jesus is making. Verse 1 and verses 6 and 7 go like this. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus begins with his application, what he's getting at. And then he ends in verse 6. The Lord said, did you hear what the unrighteous judge says? Did you hear what he said? Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And there's two encouragements I want us to get from here. And then two instructions regarding prayer. And this is how we're going to conclude. The two encouragements are actually found in verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The unrighteous judge says, I'll give in. I'll do it. In a radical turn of events that no original hearer would have expected, the judge says, I don't have any reason to listen to you. There's nothing you can do about this, but in order to get you out of my life, I will decide for you. How much more will God listen to us? Why? Because he's a righteous God and because we are his elect. Did you catch that? Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? There could have been a lot of words put in the place of his elect, right? Will not God give justice to his children, to those who are members of his kingdom, Will not God give justice? But he says, the elect. Beloved, this is a tremendous encouragement in two, two ways. First, God is better than the judge. This isn't God being compared and being shown to be like the judge, right? The judge is unwilling. God is not unwilling. The judge is unrighteous. God is righteous. So there's actually a contrast between the judge and God. And if this unrighteous judge will give the widow justice, how much more won't God give justice to his people? Of course he will. Bob Deffenbaugh put it this way. God has chosen his disciples. They are called his elect. And he cares about his disciples because he's chosen them. But the unrighteous judge has no feelings and no relationship to the widow. The unrighteous judge delayed because he didn't care about God or man. The Lord delays out of compassion on guilty men, giving them time to repent and be saved. The unrighteous judge only cared about reducing his pain, while the righteous God came to suffer the greatest pain of all and just wrath of God in order to save fallen men. What stands out then is this. The judge is only willing to hear the widow because she's causing, he, she's causing him much pain. The judge feels as though she is beating him up. Her persistence feels like a beatdown in an MMA fight. 
So the judge acts because he's tired of the pain. But do you see what a contrast this is with our God? Do you know how much different our God is? How much does our God want us to be heard? How much does our God care about us? He cares about us so much that he sent his son to endure the pain of the cross in order that we might be heard. Now that flips everything on its head. Judge, I'm tired of the pain. Because I'm tired of pain, I'll listen to you so you'll go away. Our God, I want these people to know that they're heard. How much do I want them to know that they're heard? And how much do I want them coming to me like a child does to their parents to ask and make requests? I'm going to send my son into this world and endure pain. The judge, I want to avoid pain. Our God, I'm going to enter pain in the person and work of my son, Jesus Christ. Big difference between our God and the judge. And the second great encouragement here is that we are more loved than the widow. So the first contrast is between the unjust judge and God. If an unjust judge will listen to an annoying widow, God will most certainly listen to us because he's a good, righteous, loving God. But look at the widow. She's powerless. She has no stand before this judge. She has no reason on the earth to be heard. But beloved, who are you and I when we pray? Are we just vulnerable people who have no right to even be heard? No, we're children. Well, if God would hear the, if, if the unjust judge would hear the cause of a widow, don't you think God will hear the prayers of his children? Whom he's even said, come to me, ask, seek, knock. Of course he will. So I would remind each of us what we are before God, the widow's nothing before the judge, didn't have any money, which is why he likely had no time for her case. She didn't have men in her life to threaten the judge or to exercise power and influence and get a court case. She didn't have any of that. And yet he heard her. Well, how much more if the widow's prayer is answered and if her case is heard and she has given what she asked for, how much more will we be heard who are the Lord's children and particularly his elect you know what kind of status it is to be called the elect of God? The word elect just means to choose or select out of a mass. It's a very simple word, right? We know what this looks like. Who are the special ones on NFL or NBA draft day? Out of a mass of athletes in college looking to go pro, who are the special ones? The ones who are selected. They are the elect ones. They're the ones who get to go pro and make their millions of dollars and earn their living by entertaining people. Those are the select ones, beloved. Who, we've all, if you've married, you understand this, right? When a guy gets down on his knees and says, will you marry me? You know what he's doing? He's selecting out of all women in all the world. I select you to be the one that I will love. And I want to do life with you. Beloved, that's a special place to be in. Beloved, when we come before God in our prayers, we're coming as his elect. Isn't that amazing that Jesus puts us this way? We're his special ones, the ones that he has chosen. The elect are those whom God has chosen to save. He's placed his name upon us. He's declared each and every one of us righteous. He's transferred us into his son's kingdom. We're the bride of Christ. Sorry, guys, but we are the bride of Christ, right? Which is what even ladies, right? You have to be called sons of God because sons got the inheritance. Oh, guys, we're the bride of Christ. All of us is God's children. The church is God's bride. And he loves us like a heavenly husband loves his bride. Earthly, hus 
earthly husbands have every reason to be attentive to the cries of their wife, and how much more will God be attentive to our cries when we are his bride? The judge had no interest in hearing the woman's case, but God has a great interest in hearing the pleas and cries of his children, so much so he has commanded us to pray, requiring it of us. Think about that, beloved. You're not coming to God as an outcast. We're not coming to God. We're not coming to a judge as a criminal. We're not coming to the creator as a mere creature alongside other creatures like crocodiles and trees and pansy flowers. We're not coming to the Most High as an unworthy worm. We're coming to our Father who reigns in heaven, who loves us with an everlasting love. We're coming to him as one of his elect, as a blood-bought child of his, as ones whose sins have been paid for in his son, as one who has been clothed in the robes of righteousness, and as one to whom he has commanded, ask, seek, knock. And Hebrews 4, 16 let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, if God would graciously give us his son, if he would give him up for us all, which is the language of death on the cross, if he would do that for you and I to make us children of his, Will he not with Christ also graciously give us all things? Of course he will. Does he not want us to come to him and pray? Of course he does. Can we not expect to be heard, beloved? I don't know what you expect when you pray. If you're like me, you've got to work through that. A lot of times expectations are low. I'm not worthy to be heard. You're right. We're not worthy by nature to be heard. But we've been saved. We now belong in union with Jesus Christ. We are now worthy to be heard so much so God commands us to come to him. This is incredible privilege. And if an unjust judge will hear the cause of a widow, God will how much more hear the cause and the prayers of his children that he loves dearly. And if you wonder how much does God love me, prove it. Just go look at the cross. What God would give up his only begotten son to get worthless people like you and me. That is an exchange that doesn't make any logical human sense. It doesn't. That's how much you and I are loved. That the infinitely valuable second person of the Trinity would take on flesh and go stand in our place so that we could be set free from the punishment due our sins. That's how much you and I are loved. That's how much God wants us to be heard. Now I want to conclude with a couple of instructions for prayer that Jesus gives, very simple. The first is pray always, verse one, always pray, right? He told this parable so that we might always pray. First Thessalonians 5, 17 puts it this way, pray without ceasing. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And Luke 21, 36, stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Huge emphasis on prayer. That's, that's unceasing. That's persevering. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily always praying, right? Like we're sitting in our closet from the time our alarm clock goes off to the time we go to bed and we're not doing our work. That's not the point. But the point is that we're praying day in and day out. That the, what's characteristic of the life of a believer is that from conversion till the day we die, a prayer is a part of our life. It is a regular part of our life. It is an ordinary part of our life. 
what is a defining characteristic of every Christian? They're people of prayer. We just pray. Some of us might have more time to pray during the day, others of us less. Some of us might be praying three times a day. Some of us might be praying more. Some of us might be praying once. Maybe we're tired and we miss a day. Okay, got it. But we're praying people, right? That's what characterizes believers. And Jesus wants us to be persistent in prayer. Spurgeon, how many times don't we ask of God and and we have not because we don't wait long enough at the door. We just won't keep at it. We knock a time or two at the gate of mercy and as no friendly messenger opens the door, we go our ways. Too many prayers are like boys runaway knocks. They're given and then the giver is away before the door can be opened. Oh, for grace to stand foot to foot with the angel of God and never, never, never relax our hold, feeling that the cause we plead is one in which we must be successful. For souls depend on it. The glory of God is connected with it. The state of our fellow men is in jeopardy. So it's interesting. It was not my timing, but if you were here a few weeks ago at night, we looked at uh, prayer, the altar of incense, and how it was offered morning and evening and prayer as something we need to be doing all the time, continually, right? We're, we're looking at it again this morning. So beloved, let me throw this out. Uh, I always like to apply a text by throwing the paper on the front porch. I don't want to throw it through your front window. That's for you to pick up and for me to pick up. I also don't want to leave it on the sidewalk where we say, I don't know what to do with this, but let's be really practical. Let's try and land this thing on the porch. Here it is. Where do you have scheduled into your day in life and where do I have scheduled into my day in life? Time for prayer. Because if it's not part of our schedule, I guess most of us would say it's probably not going to happen. Busy people, right? I'm sure we're all busy. Where do you have it scheduled? Make an appointment with God. This is for all of us. Every Christian, right? We've got to figure this out. Al Mohler used to say that if he were to pray in the morning, he'd have a lap filled with hot coffee. It would fall over. He'd be dead asleep, right? Couldn't pray in the morning. So he prays at midnight. <laughs> it's great. For some of us, that'll be when we pray. Some of us are early morning folks. I got to do it right at the start or my day will get too packed up. Some of us, we have a lunch break. We have breaks during the day. We pray during then. But whatever it is, beloved, it's for us to figure out. We're just to be a people of prayer. So that number one instruction, always pray. But then secondly, don't lose heart. Verse one, he gave this parable so that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. The language of losing heart is to be negatively influenced so that you experience inner weariness. It's to give in to evil. It's to turn coward. J.C. Ryle said this regarding it. Let it be graven deeply in our minds that it is far more easy to begin a habit of prayer than it is to keep it up. The fear of death or the prickings of conscience or some excited feelings may make a man begin praying. But to go on praying requires faith. We are apt to become weary and to give way to the suggestion of Satan that it is of no use. We must remember that our Lord expressly told us always to pray and not to faint. One pastor said this, Jesus knows that persistent prayer in the face of evil can be hard. He knows that we can get tired. He knows we can all too easily become discouraged. And he knows that we can actually be afraid to trust God with our lives but he doesn't want us to give up. So beloved, another encouragement, don't lose heart. And how do we lose heart? How many of you have been praying for months that something would take place? Lord, save this person. Lord, give me strength to follow you. Lord, grant that the sin would die. And the battle right now that we're going through is still just as fierce as it was a few months ago or even two or three years ago. And the person isn't saved. 
How many of us have been praying for decades? The same prayer, right? Good prayers. Hey, Lord, save my child. Lord, they don't know you. Lord, save this friend. Lord, give me grace. Like I'm still wrestling with the same sin I was 10 or 20 years ago. I need grace to follow. Give me strength. Grant that I would repent and die to myself and live for you rather than the passions of my flesh. And yet the battle's still just as poignant. How many of us have been praying for God's kingdom to come in the hearts and lives of our loved family members, but they still don't know him? Or our friends? It's so easy to lose heart, isn't it? Well, maybe I should just stop praying that. No, Jesus is saying, look, don't lose heart. Keep praying for these things. Keep at it. Just like the widow, don't quit. Our God doesn't need to be annoyed. He wants to hear us. Our God doesn't view us as incapable of being heard, right? We're his children. And he's telling us and encouraging us, look, every day as a child of mine, I want you to come and I want you to make your requests. And I want you to keep requesting. And I want you to keep asking. And I want you to keep coming back to me as it were and knocking on heaven's door and saying, Lord, Please grant salvation to this person. Lord, may your kingdom come. May unreached peoples come to know you. Lord, grant salvation to these loved ones of mine. Lord, give me grace to follow. Lord, watch over so-and-so and grant them grace to follow. God's telling us, keep coming over and over as a father who loves us. And then let me conclude with this. 30 seconds here, maybe 60. Verse 7, will he delay long over them? Now, it's a great question. God's timing is in our timing, right? Will he delay long over them? The answer is no, he won't. He'll answer them speedily. But oftentimes, God's timing is not our timing. We say, Lord, answer this prayer in the next five seconds. God says, you know what? I'm going to teach you perseverance. I'm going to teach you faith. I'm going to require that you pray to me out of faith, something you can't see with no visible results for the next 10 years, and then I'll answer that speedily. I'm going to require that you pray this until the day you die so that you can grow in faith. And in God's timing, his answer will indeed be speedily. But God doesn't operate in our timetable. So yes, his answer will come speedily in the divine timetable, absolutely. And he will vindicate his elect. But let me Close with this verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Just rest in this, beloved. Jesus is encouraging us here. Don't doubt God and his willingness and his commitment to answering our prayers. Don't doubt him to do this. He will fulfill his end of the deal. He will vindicate his people. He will grant us the grace to follow Jesus between this long time between his first and second coming when things get really difficult and filled with a lot of suffering. He will give us justice and give us what we need to make it to the end. But here's the question that Jesus ends with. Nevertheless, verse 8. In other words, nevertheless, knowing full well that God will defend and give justice to his elect and he'll make good on answering prayers. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, nevertheless, what are you going to do? Will there be anybody between Jesus' first and second comings who actually prays persistently? Will there be anybody who believes God and just prays? Will there be anybody who believes this word, who believes in Christ, and who takes up this mantle of persistent prayer? It's a great question to end on, right? Will he find faith when he comes? Are there going to be believers, whether 
half the world's population or whether like one tiny percent of the world's population, will there be people who actually believe and look to God in faith and keep knocking on the door with prayer? It's a great question. What are you doing with it, beloved? What am I doing with it? Because he may come tomorrow. And will he find people who believe in him and who are persistently praying? Let's pray.